Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here at KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look at a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. We do our best to stay away from politics. Instead, we concentrate on research, on facts, and on the expertise of our guests to help us arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrated policy solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and national-level issues. Everything is fair game. Our objective is civil, thoughtful dialogue about important policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move society forward. I'm Joe Moravchik. And I'm Steve Poskanzer. Today, Joe and I are going to discuss space law on the program. Joining us for our discussion via Zoom is Michelle L.D. Hanlon. Michelle Hanlon is co-director of the Air and Space Law Program at the University of Mississippi School of Law. She is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Space Law, the world's oldest law journal dedicated to the legal problems arising out of human activities in outer space, and its sister publication, the Journal of Drone Law and Policy. Ms. Hanlon is also a co-founder and president of For All Moonkind, a nonprofit corporation that is the only organization in the world focused on protecting human cultural heritage in outer space. In this capacity, she was instrumental in the development of the recently enacted One Small Step Act in the United States. For All Moonkind has been recognized by the United Nations as a permanent observer to the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Finally, Ms. Hanlon is an advisor to the Hague Institute for the Global Justice Off-World Approach Project. Let me share just a bit more background on our distinguished guest. Michelle received her undergraduate degree in political science from Yale University, her JD, magna cum laude, from Georgetown University, and an LLM in air and space law from McGill University. Prior to focusing on aviation and space law, Michelle was engaged in a private business law practice. Her legal career commenced with the restructuring of sovereign debt for a number of South and Latin American countries. And this evolved, in turn, into the negotiation and implementation of cross-border technology mergers and acquisitions. In her subsequent solo practice, she advised entrepreneurs across four continents on all aspects of bringing innovative ideas to market, from basic corporate formation to financings and buyouts. Michelle continues to counsel clients with respect to all aspects of air, space, and cyber law, through the consulting firm ABH Aerospace, LLC. Michelle Hanlon, welcome to Public Policy This Week. It's truly our pleasure to have you as our guest to share your obvious expertise on a fascinating topic that I would venture most of our listeners know very little about, until this morning, that is. (laughs) Why don't we start a discussion? Michelle, absolutely basic question. What exactly is space law? Well, Joe and Steve, thank you so much for having me and allowing me this opportunity to share my passion for space and space law. You know, it's funny when you think about what is what is law, what is space law? It's really uh, uh, the when you think about how people describe space, um, a lot of the allure seems to be it's the wild, wild west. You know, there's no there's no laws. It's lawless. We can do whatever we want. We need to get out there and and strike, you know, get away from all the regulations on Earth. You know, the fact is that Uh, law is about how humans relate to each other. And one of the things that we have that's vital is this concept of international law. And international law applies to space. You don't get to sort of leave all laws and humanity and consideration behind just because you're in a different venue. And so what we actually have is a a treaty system already back in the 1950s, um, when right after... um, the, the Soviet Union shocked the world with the uh, launch of Sputnik, which orbited the Earth uh, three or four, you know, a, a few times. Um, people started to get really worried. We were in the middle of a Cold War. Um, if things could be shot down from space or, you know, if, if people were able to survey whatever you could do from space, we didn't know. But our, our, these, our predecessors did know 
that they didn't want war in space. They didn't want our Cold War to go beyond our atmosphere. And so even in the midst of a Cold War, even during the Cuban Missile Crisis, through all of that, um, we sat down through something called the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. I doubt many people have heard of that, but there's even an Office of Outer Space Affairs at the United Nations, all created in the um, late 50s, precisely for, and think about the name of that committee, Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. Since we first reached the heavens, we have been really, really concerned about making sure space is peaceful and that it is uh, explored for the benefit of all humanity. So it's not lawless. We have we have the structure uh, with this treaty, and there's uh, it's a very short treaty um, as treaties go. You know, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea is about 220 pages. The Outer Space Treaty is about two, um, and it's very very basic. And you know, when we think about again the evolution of the law, how wonderful it is that we have this sort of framework document um, negotiated at a time when we didn't know anything about what we could do to sp- in space. And now, now we are at a, really a very critical juncture because there are a lot of gaps in the agreement, understandably, um, and now we need to fill those gaps. You know, when you say we decided this, put it back in that Cold War context, the we would have been both the United States and the Soviet Union at that time? And would there have been other actors sitting at the table trying to figure this out? Absolutely. So the Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space was actually about 24 nations to start with. Um, you know, looking back, uh, it, it, I think it, there were not a lot of representation from Africa or South America, um, you know, but um, it, and it was very much driven. I mean, we were a very polarized world, very it doesn't feel that different today, I guess. But, um, you know, it was the United States and the Soviet Union sitting down with their allies across the table at this committee on the peaceful uses of outer space. And, uh, you know, when we think and when I say we. Um, I always mean the international community. I mean humans, you know, and and that's one thing that is really wonderful about this committee on the peaceful uses of outer space is it meets three times a year and it's humans meeting. And, you know, everybody has these directions from their governments, but we are all in this room together uh, relating as humans and understanding. And, and um, what is what's really wonderful about this committee is the awe of space. So one thing that happened with the Apollo, the first humans ever to land on the moon, Apollo 11. Remember when they came back, they did a world tour. They were feted by every uh, every nation they went to. I mean, in Japan, you know, Pakistan, um, Mexico. And this is what space does. It brings people together. And so we are now in this world where, you know, I can talk for hours about all the benefits we receive from space through a remote sensing law, uh, remote sensing, not law, remote sensing satellites. Um, and, you know, all the all the hopes we have for harnessing resources. But fundamentally, it's about using space to bring us together here on Earth and recognizing how minuscule we are in this universe and how much more we can do if we work together. I think that humility is a really important concept as we talk about this, and maybe we could use a little bit more of that on earthbound legal questions. Um, For me, it's very helpful to think of space law as a version of public international law, and that's kind of what you're describing to us. But I do find myself struggling with the question of how an earthbound legal system can translate into a space setting. You know, is there property rights? Do tort law, do contract law, basic concepts of what we think of as terrestrial law, how do they translate into this setting? It's really fascinating because you're right. We think about what laws apply. Well, we know that international law applies and we know that public international law, as you mentioned, um, is really made up of, of sort of the, or the International Court of Justice has identified four things, you know, treaties, um, custom as, as it is created between nations um, and the, uh, uh, oh, I'm blanking. Um, it, the uh, behavior of nations to one another, and then um, this idea of the uh, learned scholars talking about law. Um, So we do have, like I said, we do have a treaty regime. 
Um, the Outer Space Treaty was the first treaty that was negotiated. Um, it was um, negotiated in the 60s and was entered into force in 1967. Um, what that treaty says is really basic and fundamental. It is not a code. It isn't like, as, as we in the United States would say, well, according to 14 CFR, blah, 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 you can't do that. That's not what the Outer Space Treaty does. It's much more of a Magna Carta. Um, it provides these guidelines. Um, it provides a framework. And it's called the uh, principles um, and guidelines on the behavior of states in outer space, not humans. So the whole concept of space law is really still directed at that state sovereign level, which makes for some really interesting problems now. I like to make people sort of think back and think about the 60s. And my, now when I was listening to my bio, I'm like, wow, I really aged myself by talking about Brady Bonds in South America. <laughs> but the, um, you know, think about what, what the world thought of space in the 1960s. You know, when I was in school, um, think about that, that map of the solar system you had, right? Um, that was space to us. And it didn't look very romantic. It was like a bunch of balls on a piece of paper. Think about what we know now from um, James Webb Telescope. I mean, it is outrageous how different space is than what we thought it was in the 1960s. It is incomprehensible, incomprehensible how much more we are able to achieve with space than we even thought about in the 1960s. You know, the the first satellite was this little this thing the size of a grapefruit, honestly, and it couldn't do anything except send blue, you know, constellations of satellite providing internet, you know, um, taking pictures. I, I always, I laugh because when I was growing up, it was, oh, the, the Great Wall of China is the only man-made, human-made thing that we can see from space. Well, you know what? Now you can probably see my mailbox from space. That's how much technology has developed. And so it's um, the, this, this concept and to sort of get back to public international law and this idea of this relationship between states. And that is what the Outer Space Treaty does. It has some very fundamental precepts that we consider to be customary international law, which means even though you haven't signed the agreement, you are still bound by these concepts. So we have um, the concept that um, the exploration and use of space shall be free to all. Everybody, everybody has the right to use space however they want. Um, the second concept is there is no national appropriation in space. Um, Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty says you cannot go onto the moon and plant your flag and claim it in the name of your country. And that was very clear, and the United States made it very clear when Apollo 11 landed on the moon. Yes, we are planting the American flag. Um, that was a, uh, you know, let's be honest. It was the American taxpayer that funded that trip, right? Um, so we ought to get a little bit of recognition for that. But it was very clearly not a claim of territory. And with them, the, uh, the Apollo astronauts brought with them um, messages of peace on a disc. Um, and think about this back in the day, you know, it was a disc the size of a half dollar, which was just incredible. Um, but messages of peace from more than 70 countries. Um, and all of them talked about um, kinship and brotherhood. And, oh, this is such an amazing step for humanity. So again, this is the concept um, even as we were in this Cold War, even as the uh, Vietnam War was starting, even as the United States itself was roiled in these civil rights battles, um, we were able to see beyond that and understand how important space is. Not again, we had no idea about the resources there. We just knew, wow, um, we have just opened up a universe and what are we going to do with it? A great deal of foresight exercise that you don't always see. You know, as you describe the inability or the desire that no nation could appropriate space or use it for their own nationalistic goals, it makes me think, do we use maritime admiralty law as maybe a really good prototype or a base for trying to translate into space? The oceans don't belong to anyone either, right? That's right. So we all we have two really interesting treaties here on Earth that we borrow from. One is the UN Co uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, the maritime law. The other is the Antarctic Treaty. Um, both offer some really good guidelines, but they're both fundamentally different um, from the concept of space. Both, first of all, uh, deal with finite properties, mm -hmm. finite areas. Space is infinite. Um, we, you know, and, and the, the one thing that I would encourage everybody to do, I want to let's step back for a minute and think about space in context. Um, we keep calling it outer space, 
but it's not outer. We're in space, right? So we cannot, we shouldn't, you know, it's not out there. We're part of it. We're part of the cosmos and we have to start acting like it and start being responsible about it. Our low earth orbit is a finite resource. That is, you know, we are crowding that orbit um, and, and we need to be really careful. The moon is also a finite resource, right? We don't want to mine the moon away, no matter what we find there. It has too much uh, sort of cultural uh, bonds with with us on here on earth. But the rest of the space is is infinite. And so you can't take the Convention on the Law of the Sea and apply it to that infinity. Uh, you can't take the Antarctic Treaty, which is focused on this very, you know, sort of very small area, and take it out there. The Antarctic Treaty also, because people always applaud that to me. Well, you know, I like to remind people, um, a lot of countries claim sovereignty or claim territory in Antarctica, and the treaty doesn't say you can't. The treaty says, oh, yeah, we recognize a lot of people claim territory here. We're going to kick that can down the road. Let's talk about it again in 20 years. You know, we can't deal with space that way. Um, and the, the law of the sea is really interesting. Um, there's one provision that... Uh, people that worries people who are interested in going to space. Um, the, the Convention on the Law of the Sea was um, negotiated at the same time as the Outer Space Treaty. And the Convention of the Law of the Sea says that um, the high seas are the common heritage of all humankind. And the Outer Space Treaty says that space is the province of all humankind. Okay. I'm a lawyer. I know everyone's rolling their eyes. What difference does it make? That's all. It it, it no, makes no, no, a we're, huge we're difference. We're lawyers here too. And we're, we're immediately focusing on the point that you just made. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so you know what is what is the province of all humankind? It's something less than a common heritage of all humankind, and that's important because within the law of the sea, um, there is this concept of of trying to uh, mine the natural resources of the sea. And that can't be done until a commission approves sort of regulations, including how we share benefits achieved through those. So it's interesting because it has been argued that that provision um, has sort of stunted our ability to uh, uh, take take advantage of the resources in the high seas um, because it's a huge hurdle. And the concept of shared benefit means uh, the corporations will make all that investment and then have to give a lot of it away. The really fascinating thing is that the the commission meet was to meet as soon as somebody said, I have a viable plan. And then the commission has two years to come up with the right rules to govern. So I think, believe it was the country of Nuaru went to the commission and said, you know, we want to um, mine the high seas. Let's get the commission going. Commission has met for one year, has not come up with any regulations. So it has one more year to come up with regulations or none will apply. Um, and so, you know, the whoops, nobody really thought that through. Um, but so the, the, that, that concept um, has been captured in, you know, I, I did say there were, I, did, I haven't said yet, there are four treaties which generally govern um, space activities. There's a fifth one called the Moon Agreement, which tried to do what the committee on the, um, Law of the Sea did, the Convention of the Law of the Sea. Um, but the Moon Agreement has only been ratified by 18 nations. Um, and uh, so the, the concept of that common heritage is clearly not accepted with respect to how we look at space. Michelle, I've got a two-part question for you. There's a lot of great information coming at us fast. So I'm hoping you can clarify a couple of things. You just said any country's free to explore space. And you talked about agreements being in place regarding appropriation in space. Can any country put objects in space? And then is there a governing body that requires the notification and registration of space activities, such as putting objects in space? Absolutely. So the it free to explore means free to explore and use however you want. So okay. I always use the example of remote sensing satellites. Okay. I'm glad you're bringing um, that up because you mentioned that earlier and that's a, that's a good topic to bring up here. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, remote sensing satellites are basically just, you know, satellites that spy on everybody else. Right. Um, of course we use them for a lot more things than spying. You know, it helps farmers figure out where to plant. I mean, the benefits of remote sensing satellites are a whole hour of conversation on another day. Um, but the fact is that they were first created to spy. 
Um, so when you think about the freedom to explore and use space, one of the questions that came up very early on was, wait a minute, um, where does, if, if I, you can't fly a plane over my country and spy, you know, this is what we had the whole U-2 incident. The United States was sending airplanes, aircraft over the Soviet Union to, to see how they were developing the, their weaponry. Um, the U-2, uh, one of the U-2s was shot down and that was perfectly legal under international law because it had violated Soviet airspace. So now let's go into space and you have, instead of an aircraft, you have a spacecraft seeing the exact same thing. Um, a lot of countries objected and said, wait a minute, that's, that can't be right. You are um, violating our sovereign boundaries by looking down into our country. And this was debated in the United Nations for about 20 years. Is this, a, is this an acceptable use of space under the Outer Space Treaty? And ultimately, the United Nations said, yes, it is, because you are free to use space however you want. Um, so long as there is an Article 4 of the Outer Space Treaty, so long as you don't put weapons of mass destruction in space or nuclear weapons, um, and so long as you use celestial bodies for peaceful purposes. So then can you put anything in space that's sort of going into that? Yes, you can put anything in space so long as it's not a weapon of mass destruction or uh, a nuclear weapon. Um, and that is then, and that is really scary, okay? Because again, lawyers, what is not captured there? Conventional weapons, right? Mm -hmm. And then uh, the, that subtle little, the Article 4 says, um, the moon and other celestial bodies must be used exclusively for peaceful purposes. Doesn't say space um, at all. So there's this huge gap there. Um, but you can put anything in space. And how it works is if you want to send something to space, um, then we have Article 8 of the Outer Space Treaty and Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty, which say that a country has to um, authorize and supervise any of its national activities, activities in space, whether or not they're with a governmental or non-governmental entity. That is your national obligation to the world to take care of, you know, to make sure your people are using space properly. Um, and then there's actually an entire registration convention, which talks about um, how you need to notify the world of what you're putting into space. And so if you want to launch, for example, um, a lot of high schools are launching CubeSats now. You actually have to go to the U.S. Uh, Federal Aviation Administration and you get a license for that. And then that license is also sent to the, well, the license isn't, but notification is sent to the United Nations and the United Nations will put that object on its register of space objects. And so we have, um, again, this is a concept that was created in the 60s. And so we have a very rudimentary list. And I say rudimentary because there's no follow on. You say, I'm sending this up to space. Um, you don't have to tell the world where it is after, you know, and we know those things move around. They're pulled in by gravity. So one of the biggest issues we're facing is understanding, making sure we're always aware where everything is. Um, and when we talk about the Space Force and everybody thinks about Star Wars and, you know, lasers and so forth, um, you know, Space Force is fundamentally, right now anyway, about understanding space situational awareness, understanding where everything is in space and making sure um, U.S. assets are not in danger. Michelle, many different national governments have an active presence in space, most notably, of course, the United States, China, Russia, and the U.K., by one count, we've seen 80 countries have satellites, but there are also private companies in space, such as Boeing and SpaceX and Blue Origin and Virgin Atlantic. Is private industry regulated by negotiated space law treaties? Oh, there we go. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, yes and no. Um, the, the Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty makes it very clear that a national government has to authorize and supervise its, its nationals in space, whether they're governmental or non-governmental. Mm. Um, national governments also have liability and responsibility for the, the actions of their nationals in space. And so for people who um, aren't that familiar with public international law, when we think about liability of a government, um, it means um, if the government you know, if the person, if, if somebody blows something up in, in, if, in the UK, if a, a US person blows something up in the UK, the US is not necessarily liable for the actions of that individual, right? You have to show some agency, you have to show that the United States maybe knew or should have known, um, at the very least, um, some sort of 
tie-in. That doesn't hold true. This in, space is completely different. This is one aspect of space that's completely different from terrestrial public international law. Um, if something happens in space, if I'm not gonna, I'm gonna pick on Elon Musk because everybody knows his name. If Elon Musk um, sends a crew to Mars and they bump into the Chinese space station, even though the United States had nothing to do with that officially, the United States is liable because Elon Musk is a US person and the United States is liable for its people. So that is how the, um, the, the treaty provisions trickle down to uh, commercial entities and non-governmental entities. Um, the biggest question though is, and I, I hope we get to it later, in the, in, is this concept of uh, appropriation and property ownership. Um, because the treaty is very clear that you can't claim sovereign territory in space, but that's all it's clear about. There's a lot of wiggle room in there um, to to understand what can a commercial entity do in space. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Steve Poskanzer, and my co-host is Joe Moraccia. We're talking today with Michelle Hanlon from the University of Mississippi School of Law about space law. Michelle, how is space law adjudicated? In other words, how are disputes about what's happening in space settled? So we haven't had any disputes about space publicly settled yet. Um, so it's interesting. There is no court of space law. Um, there is no sort of arbitral space arbitral uh, commission. Um, what's going to happen is going to be uh, litigated to the International Court of Justice. So we actually have um, an entire convention, the Liability Convention, that, that talks about what to do when something bad happens in space. Um, the Liability Convention is very clear. Um, they, it makes four states potentially responsible for anything that happens. It's called the launching state. So it's the state that launches the object, the state that procures the launch, the state from whose territory it's launched, the state from whose facility is launched. Um, and as you recall, I said the Outer Space Treaty governs states, and those states are liable for anything that their nationals do. So if something happens in space, then um, think about what what is a good lawyer going to do if, um, uh, let me pick on somebody else, if um, iSpace, uh, the Japanese company that is headed to the moon, hopefully to land successfully in April, yay, um, if uh, iSpace were to hit the uh, Chinese space station on the way, or no, let's say, let's make it, um, it, it hits a blue, the blue origin for some reason. Um, they then um, blue origin, isn't going to sue iSpace. It's going to ask the U S government to sue Japan because Japan has a lot more money than iSpace mm -hmm. and under the current uh, liability convention, that's how these things will be adjudicated. You have to spend a year in diplomatic discussion. If you haven't reached a, a, a agreement by then, then you can set up a commission um, and then, then that commission meets and then you can decide whether or not you're going to um, abide by the decision of the commission or not. So space law, unfortunately, is very much like public international law. Um, it's all about that name and shame. You know, Russia violated international law when it invaded the Ukraine. And what have we done about it? Um, and this is this is the same thing that we're going to see in space. But I do want to caution, I spent the week defending international law against a lot of uh, commercial entities who thought that it was useless because it doesn't have an enforcement provision. International law is not useless. You know, we wouldn't be able to fly from the US to even Canada, much less to Europe without international law. There are a lot of sort of norms of behaviors that are very well um, recognized and yes, there are a lot of intricacies in terms of enforcing international law in cases like the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. But there are, but that has been almost universally condemned. And though we can't necessarily do anything about it, uh, Russia is not, you know, sort of our, our a friendly neighbor anymore. And that has a lot of very serious connotations. Um, so no, we don't have an enforcement or an adjudication process at this point. What I'm hoping to see is that the commercial entities continue to grow more rapidly. We're seeing already a lot of commercial entities able to do things that only countries used to be able to do. And you know what? Commercial entities can be a lot more rational than countries that are caught up in geopolitics and borders and prestige. 
And maybe it's the commercial entities who will create their own commercial arbitration uh, body yeah. to to get us out from under these this sort of strictures of the Outer Space Treaty um, and, and move us more to a contractual basis of enforcement. More of a shared metric in terms of, you know, financial consequences as opposed to national prestige and... Exactly, exactly. Michelle, you've talked about the vastness of space and the greatness of space and how our concept of space has changed since the 1960s. How, how is space defined? And where does space begin? Is it the Carmen line? Is there international agreement on how space is defined and where space begins? So, no. Uh, yeah, space begins. It depends on where you are. Um, the, the international community has been... Um, Debating where space begins since the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space was formed in 1958, and we have not come to a conclusion yet. Uh, the United States uh, it has is I, I, I use the term hedging its bets. That doesn't sound very good, but um, in the United States we have the concept of uh, functional test. You know, it, if a vehicle is intended to go to space, then we're going to treat it under space law. Um, the Department of Defense does set a line at 100 kilometers, um, I think, just for terms of allowing itself to think and, you know, figuring out which, which who gets astronaut wings and who doesn't. Um, you know, we have Blue Origin uh, stating, you know, that Jeff Bezos, uh, when it when it was in sort of that head to head with Virgin Galactic, uh, came out on, on Twitter and said, well, we're going to the Carmen line. So obviously we're better. You know, they're not getting that high. Um, so it, yeah, it's, uh, who, who, who knows? Um, only two nations in the world, um, Australia and Denmark have actually defined where space begins. Um, they use a hundred kilometers and they have been very clear, um, that that is only with respect to their national laws, that they're not making a, an international statement about it. Um, and this is actually going to be a, a big issue soon. You know, when we think about, uh, all of the exciting things that we can do in that space, between air and space, um, and what law is going to apply there? You know, a lot of people talk about uh, the balloons. The balloons. Um, you know, the Chinese balloon was at sixty thousand feet. Okay. Yeah, which was which was definitely in sovereign airspace. You know, there's no question about that. But had it been at a hundred kilometers, very different question. Um, and so when we when we start thinking about um, high altitude drones that are going to be able to do things like provide internet and stuff, um, we're going to have to d decide where space begins. When we start talking about point-to-point -point travel, we're going to have to decide where space begins. But right now, um, the main, the, the, you know, the, the UN is just sort of keeping a step back. And, and that's not a bad thing. Um, you know, we don't understand really um, all, you know, if we think about, you uh, again, the 1960s and uh, 2023 impressions of what space is. Um, it's a very good thing that we didn't have somebody draw a line in the 60s. Um, but it is something that we have to turn our attention to. Let's shift gears here a little bit, Michelle. Um, how did you first become interested in space law? What was your inspiration to go into this new domain? So I am a child of Star Trek, aging myself again. Captain Kirk, all the way. Nobody, nobody can beat him. I, um, I just That's fighting my... words for many listeners, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, my wife likes the later version. Was it Picard, Captain huh? Luke Picard? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. And there's always Janeway. I love Janeway, but no, it's Captain Kirk. Um, the uh, my father uh, built rockets when he was very young in Philadelphia. Um, we have always had space books around my, I'm a foreign service brat. And so we moved um, every three years and every three years, I was always thrilled to unpack those space books, right? You know, at the time, life books, Mars, Earth. Yeah. Um, but I am terrible at math. And um, back when I was in high school, uh, you know, if you didn't do math, you didn't, that was it. You know, you're, you're going to become a lawyer, God forbid. Right. Um, so I, I love my career. I've, I've had a blast, but um, I put, I put space away. And then my son, when he was um, about 11 or 12, he read a book by now my good friend, Virgil Pop, a Romanian space lawyer called who owns the moon. And um, he came to me and said, you know, mom, you're a pretty good lawyer. And you know, you're always doing deals. I said, yeah. He said, I, I really want to mine asteroids when I grow up. So 
this book says that I might not be able to do that, but that there's, you know, there's some leeway there. Can you figure that out by the time I grow up? Hmm. And um, I was like, really? That's really interesting. I had no idea. And so that sparked this interest. And um, that's when I, you know, when he, when I empty nested, um, I decided to go back to school and get my LLM um, in space law and really focus. It's, it's a sense of, it's sort of, I don't want to say giving back, you know, I really enjoyed my corporate law career, loved it. Um, but, you know, I was making a lot of money for a lot of other people. Um, and now this is sort of, you know, I told my husband, uh, it's me time. And when we when we empty nested, we left him all alone in the house. He was rambling around because I actually moved to uh, uh, Montreal to earn my LLM. But, uh, but yeah, that was it. It was a, the, an 11 year old boy saying, wait a minute, um, can you own the moon? Can I own an asteroid? Um, and so he thankfully joined, uh, joined the Navy. Uh, unfortunately, he's kept, uh, getting out in June. So I got to figure that out pretty soon. <laughs> well, that's a great transition to my next question, because we know from your bio that you're the co-founder and president of For All Moonkind. And since we were just talking about whether you can mine on the moon. Can you tell us more about the mission and especially the impact of that particular nonprofit organization? Absolutely. Thank you. The For All Mankind is the only organization in the world, um, in the universe, I like to say, <laughs> that's focused on protecting human heritage in outer space. And so I think back, think to Earth and think about things like the pyramids of Egypt or Stonehenge. Those are protected by the UNESCO World Heritage Convention and recognized as uh, universe, as, as uh, human heritage covers all man humankind um the artifacts in space are not um so think about i like to compare um the first boot print on the moon with our foot our footsteps in like Toli, tanzania mm -hmm. in like Toli, tanzania there's a, a a plane um where we think we found the first evidence of of humans standing upright and those footsteps are protected you know you, they're covered um, every year with the grit and mud that they were discovered under because they've decided that's the best way to preserve them. And you have to get a special permit to go and see them and, you know, they'll remove things and so forth. No such protections for those blueprints. The very first time humans stepped on another celestial body, anybody can go up there, run them over, pick them up, you know, whatever. No, no recognition, no protection. And it's not just American. You know, uh, the Soviet Union got to the moon first. Luna 2 was the first um, human-made object to hard impact another celestial body. Luna 9 was the first um, human-made object to soft impact. Um, the Russians were the first to put wheels on the moon with their Lunacod rover. Um, and of course, the Chinese have the first mission on the far side of the moon. These are all incredible human achievements, and they need to be recognized as human achievements. And so For All Mankind is focused on creating a convention to protect human heritage in outer space that works a little bit like the UNESCO World Heritage Convention. We can't just take the UNESCO World Heritage Convention and pop it into space because the rules say um, the uh, uh, sites are identified by the state um, with that, that claims it as it, within its territory. So if the United States were to go to, to the UNESCO and say, hey, um, we'd like the Apollo 11 lunar landing site to be considered a, a World Heritage Site, UNESCO would say, oh, so you're claiming it's your territory. That's a violation of outer space law. Um, so we need something different. And that's what uh, From Mankind is focused on. And we've been very privileged to be able to address the United Nations on this. Um, we formed the um, organization in 2017, um, and we've had tremendous success in um, we uh, not only is it now discussed regularly within the uh, international community, this concept of how we protect heritage in outer space, um, but it was uh, included in uh, the Artemis Accords, which are a multilateral um, uh, agreement. It's not a treaty. It's not binding agreement, but um, which says in Section 9 that we need to figure out how to protect heritage in outer space. Um, and that document has been signed by 23 nations. So we feel like we, we were instrumental in getting those into that, that international multilateral agreement. Um, even more, we were, uh, we have some, we passed something called the One Small Step Act here in the United States. We worked closely with Senator Gary Peters of Michigan, um, to formulate, to, to figure out how to protect. And, uh, NASA has created guidelines which say, oh, please world, 
um, when you get back to the moon, these were created in 2011, um, just do us a favor and, and avoid the um, Apollo lunar landing sites because, you know, there's there's some stuff there and they, they use sort of scientific and, and they didn't so much say cultural as, as, you know, scientific experiments and our stuff and we don't want it ruined. But that's not binding or enforceable on anybody, not even on U.S. citizens. And so the One Small Step Act was intended to take those guidelines and make them binding on all U.S. citizens. Um, this is a burden on the U.S. Uh, the U.S. entities who want to go to space, absolutely. But the United States has the most robust regulatory process of any country in the world. We are the most responsible space actors you can have. We put a lot of responsibility on our space actors because we understand how important it is um, that space be sustainable. And when you look at the Biden administration, they are really pushing, again, responsibility, sustainability. Um, so the uh, unfortunately, um, the commercial uh, space sector was a little bit concerned about the language. What the One Small Step Act says now is that if you are contracting with NASA, you agree to be bound by the NASA guidelines. Um, I don't think, honestly, any U.S. Uh, actor is planning on going and trying to make money off of the Apollo lunar landing sites. Um, but what we achieved with One Small Step Act is the first time in history that any national government has recognized that we have cultural heritage in outer space. And that is a tremendous first step um, towards our next giant leap to uh, international protections. Absolutely. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1, broadcasting from Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Steve Poskanzer. My co-host is Joe Moravchik. We're talking today with Michelle Hanlon from the University of Mississippi School of Law about space law. Michelle, there are, there are plans in the works for space tourism and space settlements on both the moon and Mars. You've talked a little bit about mining on the moon or on asteroids for precious metals and rare elements. Are there rules in place to protect fragile environments? I mean, are there environmental concerns on the moon or Mars or asteroids that we have to touch on and comment on that if you would. So, you know, people will say, what environment on the moon? It's a dead planet. It's a dead celestial body. There's nothing there. There's not even gravity there. You know, what are we worried about? We should be able to do anything we want on the moon. Um, there is article nine of the outer space treaty um, is, is says, you know, we, when we uh, explore space, we will do our best not to harmfully contaminate space. Okay, so think about that. Harmful contamination, what does that mean? The concept of harmful contamination has been sort of um, uh, taken up by the Committee on the COSPAR. I always forget what it stands for. A Committee on Space Resource, Space Utilization Safety, sorry. Um, but when the, again, think back to the 60s. What were we thinking about when we were negotiating the Outer Space Treaty? Um, I like to say we were pretty lonely and thinking, really, are we the only creatures in the universe? And so that concept of harmful contamination was included in the Outer Space Treaty, uh, not so much out of environmental concern, but because we wanted to learn more about our own evolution. And so the idea was we don't want to contaminate, for example, Mars with uh, human biological or earthly terrestrial biological stuff that may make it difficult for us to understand how life evolves. Um, we don't, you know, the um, back in, I think, 2018, 2019, um, the, uh, a, a private uh, mission to the moon, uh, Bereshit, an Israeli mission, um, was hoping to become the first commercial entity to land, soft land on the moon. Um, and they included, they had their payload of experiments and unbeknownst to the regulators um, and probably unbeknownst to um Space IL as well, um, ARC Mission Foundation paid to have payload go to the moon. And on that payload was some DNA and some tardigrades. Tardigrades are um, uh, tiny little microscopic creatures um, that are, you know, people say they're cute, but they're really kind of scary looking. Um, <laughs> but they have been known to uh, survive the vacuum of space. Um, those were sent to the moon. Um, the Arc Mission Foundation did not reveal this to the FAA um, during the payload review. Mm -hmm. 
So the moon is what we call a dead planet. Nobody, nobody cares. There was no concern that, um, you know, we would send scientists to the moon and they would find tardigrades and think that, you know, wow, tardigrades existed on the moon. But it's a different story if they had ended up on Mars. Um, then if we didn't know that happened and um, we saw tardigrades on Mars 30 years from now, we would, our, our concept of evolution would be very different, would be very wrong. And so that's what Article 9 was intended to prevent. Um, because we really want to understand how we evolved. So, so no, Joe, the, there are no rules that protect other environments at all. Um, and when we talk about things, the one thing that the, we do have in the United States, um, United States, Luxembourg, Japan, and UAE have all written national laws, um, that, that say, okay, um, we, we see your article two, which says you can't claim national sovereignty in space. But we interpret that to mean um, we won't ever claim territory. But if we extract resources, if we t- pick up dirt, and we can own that dirt and we can sell that dirt and we can do whatever we want with it. The U.S. law in particular says um, when we're talking about resources, they have to be abiotic. You know, we, you cannot so much as own a plant. Um, you cannot pick up a plant. So we're starting to see an understanding of, okay, if we actually do find a planet, with an environment, we do have some ideas in place that we don't want to contaminate that environment, but they're not nearly as strong as, as I would like to see at this point. Hmm. How, how about protecting the night sky? SpaceX's Starlink currently has a constellation satellite in the sky visible from Earth as a chain of lights with plans to put up to 42,000 satellites in orbit. Are there agreements in place to preserve the night sky including from billboard-style advertising in space? So the United States is the only nation in the world that actually prohibits advertising from space. So again, world leader. Um, but no, the dark, sky, dark and quiet skies is a, is a real issue. And this is something, again, I'm proud to say is, is discussed every year at the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. And I know some, again, people rolling their eyes if they can continue to discuss it, we've got to do something about it. Um, it's not just, it's not, let's not pick on Elon all day. It's not just Starlink. You know, there are other um, satellite constellations all with visions of 80,000, um, 60,000 satellites. It's a really interesting problem, both culturally and scientifically. Um, you know, culturally, I would personally love to see a, a, the constellation train go by um, because I, you know, I just think it'd be really cool. Um, but it is disruptive. And for people who uh, gain comfort culturally, or, or just really like to see the Milky Way without obstruction, that's a problem. It's a real problem for, for astronomers. Um, and it's very difficult these days, not just because of Starlink, but because of other satellites, to be able to get clear pictures um, of other things happening in the universe. There's always some sort of light blockage. Um, and the um, these astronomers will tell you um, this is a real problem because the astronomers are the first defense against near-Earth objects. So we are just waiting for that next cataclysmic event um, to wipe us out the same way dinosaurs were wiped out. Um, Astronomers are our first line of defense because they are actually looking in the sky for those. And if we're blocking their vision, we may be blocking our vision of that cataclysmic asteroid. I don't I'm not suggesting that there's going to be one. I think I think we we are figuring out figuring it's going to be at least 100, maybe 500 years before something even comes close but we need to learn how to spot it and we need to learn how to deal with it. Um, There are no international agreements about dark and quiet skies. Uh, In the United States, uh, there there is a continuous working group and I'm happy to say that commercial industry is involved in that working group. And so Starlink in particular has already done a lot of things to try and reduce its glare. Um, it's using a different coating on its constellations. So this is this is a work in progress. This is something we're continuing to think about um, and continuing to address. You know, you've talked about safety with objects coming towards us and purity and aesthetics in space, but let's. What about all these various objects over six thousand, by some account, no longer active that are essentially junk in space? Are there plans? Are there mechanisms? Are there agreements for cooperation to remove orbital debris? 
Orbital debris is such a huge issue. Um, you know, we have something called the Kessler syndrome because if you think about, if you think about a bunch of objects just floating in space, you're not so worried, right? You can avoid them, but they're not just floating. They are speeding around our orbit at 70,000 miles an hour. Um, and when you get hit with something, even if it doesn't have explosives on it, the kinetic energy, the kinetic force can do tremendous damage. And when things get hit, when things hit, they splinter into smaller and smaller pieces. And what we've seen from shuttle and from the uh, space station is uh, pieces of debris as small as a grain of sand can actually crack the windshield of the shuttle, can actually cause a dent in the, um, the cupola of um, space station. Um, so we're, we're in this, what we call the Kessler syndrome, where we're just snowballing into a point where we're not gonna be able to access our orbit at all. Sadly, there is no law against leaving your trash up there. Yeah, there is nothing that says, you know, hey, don't, you know, it's not like, you know, if you if you jumped your car and left it on the side of the highway, you can't do that. Um, this is something that the international community has tried to address. We have something called a, a soft law, a, a non-binding resolution, which says, and it's it's a mediation, a mitigating one, not a remedial one. It says, hey. Anytime you send a satellite or an object into orbit, uh, make sure that it is either pulled up into what we call a graveyard orbit, so it won't bother anybody, or brought back down to burn up in the atmosphere within 25 years of its end of life. Wow. 25 years. How absurd is that, right? And why? Why? Because it's expensive to move stuff around in space. It's expensive to put propulsion on your, on your object. Um, and because every time you add weight, um, you add cost to that launch. So the United States, once again, taking the lead, has just, um, the FCC has uh, uh, produced um, regulations which say uh, you have five years from your end of life to bring your satellite back into orbit or to move it um, off into a graveyard orbit. But what we don't have yet um, is uh, anything that makes people, incentivizes people to clean up. There are a lot of companies um, based uh, one, one large company based in Japan, Astroscale, a lot of smaller companies based in the US, um, companies like Cislunar Industries, um, which have concepts to help remediate, to help clean up. But again, no incentive. There's no, no law that says you have to clean up. So why should a company spend that money cleaning up? So we really, really need uh, the, uh, the governments of this world to make that a requirement. And we really want to see I think the UK and Japan have committed, you know, nominal funds. I say nominal, it's in the hundreds and the tens of millions, but that's not much in space. Um, and we want to see the US step up and take take the lead in investing in these companies that are going to clean up our orbits so that we can continue to launch and so that we actually do make it to those Mars, those settlements on Mars and the moon. Absolutely. Michelle, you talked a little bit about the surveillance balloon and the U-2 program let's go back to that for a minute on february 4th of this year the u.s military shot down what was believed to be a chinese surveillance balloon a balloon that was traversing our country at above 60,000 feet the u.s of course has the u2 program where our jets can surveil the earth's surface from over 70,000 feet and satellites can collect data from earth's surface from hundreds or even thousands of miles above earth you talked a little bit about remote sensing this gets us thinking about military security and arms applications in space. It sounds like you can't put weapons on celestial bodies. There can't be nuclear weapons. But our country's allowed to put orbital weapons in space. And then who's controlling or governing the militarization or, or demilitarization of space? This is one of the, uh, the most uh, interesting and fraught issues with respect to space, absolutely. Um, because as you pointed out, Article 4 just says you cannot place nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction in space. And it says the moon and other celestial bodies shall be used exclusively for peaceful purposes. So that leaves the whole entirety of the rest of space um, with the ability to put conventional weapons in wherever you want. So we're seeing a lot of talk about co-orbital um, kinetic uh, 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 weaponry. Um, you know, some some countries like France have set have been mad because 
Russia actually has tailed them with another satellite, gotten very close to their satellite, um, which is very difficult um, and very dangerous. Um, and so France is talking about putting weapons on their satellites for protective purposes. Um, that is a terrible and a very dangerous trend. Um, one thing to, I want to make very clear is people say, you know, we're militarizing space. What is Space has always been militarized. We have always, fundamentally, the very first purposes of space were for surveillance, for protection. So this concept of, you know, we're militarizing space now is false. Um, we have done a really good job of trying to keep space peaceful. The, the issue, uh, one of the biggest issues that we're facing in the United States is um, our entire, our, we are more dependent on space than any other country in the world. Um, our military um, is supported by um, space assets. Um, our infrastructure, civilian infrastructure is supported by space assets. Everything we do from ATMs to pumping gas relies on space. People don't realize that. You cannot pump gas. You cannot use your credit card um, at a grocery store if the satellite is shot out of the sky. Hmm. And so the the United States is really the most vulnerable in terms of that reliance. And so when we think about the militarization of space, when we think about what can countries do, um, in addition to China, um, you know, floating this balloon, I, I, I like this sort of basically floating this idea to see what the U.S. will do, right? Um, we also have the ASAT test by Russia in 2021, November 2021. They shot down their own satellite. Um, perfectly legal. You can shoot down your own satellite. It's fine. And, but they created a debris pool. Um, and so what we're really looking at now is this concept of due regard and peaceful uses. Like we need to have due regard for each other in outer space, um, but we also need to be rational and understand um, that we need to protect what we have in space. Unfortunately, uh, it's not just kinetic weapons either though, right? Because space assets don't work without cyber space. Um, and we are very vulnerable to hacks as well. And so this is something when we think about the militarization of space, um, you know, those space weapons are really, um, really need to be thinking about uh, protecting our, our assets from um, cyber attacks. Well, we're getting close to the end of our program. We'd like to spend about six hours with you, but we yeah. got a few more questions for you before we wrap up. I know we know you're a Star Trek fan. That goes back to like the '60s, I believe, right? That that's when I'm Captain old. Kirk I'm old. And, um, anything else you like out there? Popular media, television, movies. Do you have any other favorites besides Star Trek that are good at covering topics about space? Oh, I I um I use TV and media to escape. So I nothing I don't I wouldn't say that things that I watch have rational views of space, but I <laughs> I love the Orville. Um, I just I love the it you know the way the that sort of pan to um, the Star Trek universe. Um, of course, the Expanse is fascinating. I I do teach a course here um, that looks at the science fiction. And, and what that says about humanity. I had a student who told me, you know, it reminded me, um, we use science fiction to sort of highlight problems on earth and put them in the future and see how we would fix them. And, and I just love that. I think that's fantastic. But I love, um, I really love Star Trek because um, my mom's Chinese, my dad is Polish. Um, I grew up all over the world. And I, I grew up in a world, my own little world where everybody looked different um, and everybody, you know, there was, I just thought that was life. And then when I was sent to boarding school here in the United States, it was a shock to me um, that, you know, everyone was white. Like I was like, wait, no, that's all right. So that's what I love about the, um, about science fiction is recognizing, looking beyond even, even the most ridiculous looking aliens, looking beyond that and seeing the humanity or uh, I don't even know what to call the, 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 the species, um, the, the goodness um, beyond. We'd like to give our guests the final word on our program. What are some, what are some concluding thoughts? Did we miss anything? Uh, wrap it up for us, Michelle. So I always like to end with 42. 
uh, for all you Douglas Adams fans out there. But no, I w- I'd want to say because we we did end on the concept of the military uses of space, and and I know that always, that sounds very pessimistic and scary. I am not pessimistic at all about space. I very firmly believe the more humans we get to space, the more humans will understand that we are in this together and will recognize. We've all seen the pictures of our pale blue marble. We've all seen the pictures of Earth from Jupiter. We are minuscule. And if we don't get this right, then we will be gone. And I think that, um, you know, this, the more people, the more tourists, even, you know, people will say, it's only the very rich people going to space, but you know, they're going to bring the price of space down. So I applaud Jeff Bezos. I applaud Elon Musk. I applaud everybody who's sinking their own money into space because that means that my children will be able to go to the moon and see the boot prints that I've protected. Love it. Michelle, where can our listeners learn more about you and the space law program at the University of Mississippi School of Law and also about For All Moonkind? Thanks. Uh, we have websites, uh, forallmoonkind.org. Um, and again, moonkind, not mankind. You'll get the TV show if you plug in For All Mankind. So For All Moonkind. And then we are um, at law at oldmiss.edu. Um, I encourage everybody, the uh, the law program has a graduate certificate program. You don't need to be a lawyer. It's entirely online. You can come and learn all about space law and, and take my courses and, and talk science fiction with me all day long. <laughs> Great. Hopefully you'll have a huge influx of Minnesotans coming to do that now. Okay. This has been a great and interesting conversation. We do have to end our program. Michelle Hanlon, thank you for being a part of Public Policy This Week on KYMN. I'm Steve Poskanzer. My co-host today has been Joe Moravchik. Michelle, I also want to thank you for taking time from your busy schedule to share your knowledge and experience with us. You were a great guest. John C., thank you so much. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. The objective for public policy this week is to inspire important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and opportunities. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1 each Friday morning from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Be sure to join us for next week's edition of Public Policy This Week. Have a great weekend, everyone. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.